0: I was feeling like this was my last chance to go. and
1: So let's just park him at the hospital.
0: <laughs> if, if
1: anyone shows sign of weakness, we, we set him on the side of the trail and they're on their own.
0: <laughs> you know, he would have been fine in the hospital. They would have taken good care of him. They probably would have figured out what was wrong with his foot. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith.
1: And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about the national parks, road trips, hiking trails, camping, backpacking and other travel related topics.
0: Today we'll be talking about a state park that's been in the news recently that you're going to want to visit, as well as a charming town on the Columbia River where you can walk in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark.
1: And we'll give our opinion about some fun scrambling hikes for teenagers in southern Utah, as well as advice on hiking down into the Grand Canyon to the remote Havasu Falls area. All this and more coming up next.
0: morning. We are happy to be back with our Mailbag episode. We had to switch things up a little. As most of you know, Mailbag is usually the last Thursday of the month, but we've been a little bit under the weather.
1: Right. That's the thing about having a podcast is if you have a cold, you can't record. And so... Uh, yeah, you just have to wait until you're better, and then uh, start recording again. So, anyway, that's that's why we had to take a little bit of a break.
0: Yeah, a lot of sickness going around. Unfortunately, hope you all are feeling good. We're we are on the road to recovery, so hopefully our voices don't sound too um, nasally. But yeah, it's good to be back.
1: Yeah. So, Karen, let's before we get into our questions, let's start with. Park News.
0: I love Park News. <laughs> and and this is a big one. This came as a complete surprise to us mainly because we had never heard of this state park. It's called Crater of Diamonds State Park and it's located in Murfreesboro, Arkansas, which is a little over an hour from Hot Springs National Park.
1: Yeah, we saw this article about a visitor on January 11th found a 7.5 carat brown diamond at this park. He was from uh, France uh, visiting and wanted to fit in a visit to this park just by happenchance at the, at the end of his trip. And then he found this huge diamond. And Karen, I am surprised that since this happened on January 11th, and that was like three weeks ago, that we haven't made a trip to Craters of Diamond (laughs) State Park yet. It's been three weeks.
0: Well, if we hadn't been sick and we had some travels in there, we would have made a beeline. And I'm just wondering, too, how many people because, you know, this was pretty widely publicized. I wonder now how many people are at that park searching for diamonds.
1: (laughs) I'm guessing that they have a surge in visitorship.
0: I bet they do because this park is one of the only places in the world where the public can search for real diamonds in their original volcanic source. And I guess visitors come from all over the world to search this this one particular 37-acre field for a variety of rocks, not just diamonds, but also minerals and other gemstones.
1: Yeah, and and there are not a lot of places in the United States where you can find diamonds, matter of fact, this may be uh, one of the only places there. Are, there is a high concentration of diamonds in South Africa or southern part of the African continent. Uh, there's other parts of the world that have concentration of diamonds. Not a lot in the United States. And this just happens to be a state park. And like you said, when you visit this park, they have a finders keepers policy. So if you find a diamond,
0: it's yours. And they facilitate you searching for diamonds because, I mean, you can bring your own mining equipment if you happen to have that, as long as it's not um, battery operated or motor driven. But you can also rent tools from the park and they'll they'll help you identify what you find and all kinds of things. So I think this is amazing.
1: Yeah, they'll help you any way they can. They're very facilitating They're encouraging people to look around. You know what they do? They even plow the ground. Uh, Now, they do this. They try to do it once a month, and sometimes uh, because of weather or muddy conditions, they can't do it. So, they try to plow these rows, to kind of freshen, like, like pull <laughs> up some of the diamonds from underneath so that people aren't digging like 20-foot holes.
0: Right. <laughs> so, Matt, as our resident geologist, I have a question for you that I'm sure everyone is wondering like I am. Why in the world are there diamonds in Murfreesboro, Arkansas?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And being the geology expert, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to explain it in terms that you can understand. Oh,
0: okay, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, Matt. Dumb it down for me. Well, I
1: plan. mean, the, the diamonds in Arkansas were, were created the same way as you find diamonds all over the world. Essentially, a diamond is just compressed carbon. And so there's tons of carbon on the planet in the Earth Earth's crust. And generally, like from... 50 to 100 miles beneath the surface in the Earth's crust is where a lot of that carbon is compressed because of heat and time and pressure. And so there's a lot of diamonds down there, but they don't make it to the surface. So every now and then with the tectonic plates moving and other uh, parts of the Earth moving, you could have cracks in the crust that cause this pressure. There's a lot of pressure beneath the Earth's mantle. It creates vents where that pushes this pressure up. And so any material that's down there gets shot up to the surface. And these little vents, just one that happened to be in Arkansas like 100 million years ago. And it just essentially spews all this material that was deep in the earth. And in that material, you're going to find diamonds. And so I just kind of all... Accumulated in this one spot, and that's that's how these areas happen all over the planet. Just so happens that there's not many of them in the United States.
0: It's a shame that there isn't one in our backyard. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, you could dig. You could dig there. Uh, I think somebody would know. Before now.
0: I think probably That there would be diamonds in our backyard. (laughs) So I didn't realize this until I started doing some research, but diamonds come in all colors of the rainbow. And the three particular colors that are found in Crater of Diamond State Park are white, brown, and yellow. And then some of the other rocks and minerals that you can find there are amethyst, garnet, Jasper, agate, and quartz. So it's a smorgasbord of rocks and minerals yeah, there.
1: Yeah, it's a geologist dream. They say that over thirty five thousand diamonds have been found in that park since it became a park in nineteen seventy two. Yeah, and, and they've found some big ones. I mean this the guy they've just found, you know, is over seven carats recently. That was a brown diamond, but Yeah, there's some pretty famous diamonds that have been found there.
0: Yeah, I jotted a few down. So uh, there is the Amarillo Starlight Diamond, which is 16 and a half carats. There's the Star of Arkansas, which is about 15 and a half carats. And then there's the Esperanza Diamond, that's about eight and a half carats. But Matt, the most notable might be the three-carat Strawn Wagner Diamond, which was found in 1990. And do you know why?
1: Yes, because I read the outline. It, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a near flawless diamond.
0: That's right. It's one of the few colorless internally flawless diamonds ever found so this diamond was cut to just a little over one carat in 1997 and it was graded perfect by the gemological institute of america apparently this diamond is considered one in a billion and it's so perfect and so rare that most jewelers and gemologists never see one during their lifetime and what's very cool is that this particular diamond is on permanent display. display at the park's visitor center because the park raised $35,000 to buy it.
1: There you go. So that is what's waiting for you amongst the plowed (laughs) rows in in Arkansas. We're going to have to go there.
0: We are definitely going to have to go there. You know, it would have been kind of a nice little Valentine's Day trip. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Hey, honey, get your bucket and your um, sieve. (laughs) We're going to go dig in the dirt. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm not going to buy you a diamond. I'm going to buy you a trip where you can find your own.
0: Best of luck to (laughs) you. The romance is alive and well. Anyway, you might want to check out Crater Diamond State Park if you go visit Hot Springs National Park. And it might not be um, as simple as it sounds to find a diamond. Apparently, this visitor from France dug in the soil all morning and then he gave up because it was such hard work and he was literally just walking through the field looking down and he found this brown diamond which by the way i saw a photo of it it looks just like a little round bumpy brown pebble so now i'm kind of worried i may have come across some of these things previously and and just just ignored them them. (laughs) yeah well
1: yeah the lesson there is like uh sometimes just try easy Exactly. A lof- lesson in life. Anyway. Exactly. So yeah, we should go. We definitely should go. Mm-hmm. I think you need to manage your expectations.
0: <laughs> For sure. All right. So that's an exciting little bit of news about our public lands. And I think, uh, should we just jump into Mailbag now?
1: Yeah. Uh, we have a few questions today.
0: We do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's
1: our first question?
0: All right. This one comes from Mark in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he wrote, I'm going to be visiting Mount Rainier National Park in July, and from there, I'm heading to Cannon Beach, Oregon. Are there any places that I shouldn't miss along the way? Any interesting stops to break up the drive?
1: There are a bunch of interesting Mm -hmm. little places, and uh, thank you for the question, because uh, a lot of times you do have to kind of ask the locals. Right. One of the stops we were going to suggest is Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument, specifically the Johnston Ridge Observatory. However, last summer there was a huge landslide on a section of the Spirit Lake Highway the only road that takes you to that observatory, and they had to close it down.
0: Yeah, we were hoping that they'd be able to get the road cleared and reopened this summer, 2024, but today, like an hour ago, we saw a local news article that said the road won't be passable again until 2026. Can you believe that?
1: Yes, I can, unfortunately.
0: My goodness, this is really unfortunate because the Johnston Ridge Observatory is a place that everyone should visit.
1: So, Mark, though, you could stop by the Mount St. Helens Visitor Center. That's still open. It's only about five miles off of I-5 on that Spirit Lake Highway. The landslide happened past the Visitor Center, and it affects just the Johnston Ridge Observatory. So, yeah, you could do that. Okay, thanks for your question, Mark.
0: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're not just going to tell you what you can't do. <laughs> we, we actually have another suggestion for you. And that would be the charming town of Astoria, Oregon.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. The <laughs> most direct route from Mount Rainier to Cannon Beach would take you right through Astoria. And it's definitely worth a stop.
0: Yes, I think the city of Astoria is darling. It's in the very northwestern corner of Oregon at the mouth of the Columbia River. So the Columbia River is the border between Washington State and Oregon State. And, you know, Astoria is not very big. It's got about 10,000 people who live there. But it's one of the oldest American settlements west of the Rocky Mountains. And the way it got its name is, in 1811, John Jacob Astor, a fur trader and real estate mogul, sent fur traders to the area who opened a trading post called Fort Astoria. Astoria for Astor, John Jacob Astor. Just think about that.
1: That that was a long time ago to have a little fort there already established in the wilderness.
0: Yes. Now, in current day, the reason you might want to stop is because there are art galleries, restaurants, breweries, shops. You can also drive around to see some of the beautiful Victorian and Craftsman homes. Now, when we're driving from Seattle to Cannon Beach, we always stop here for lunch. Um, And there's a couple good breweries that we found that also serve food.
1: Right. There's the Astoria Brewing Company. There's also... Fort George Brewery. I love Fort George's um, stout beers. Yes. uh, Imperial Mm. stout beers. Uh, Fort George also has pizza. We've been to both of these places and they're both good to stop and eat and have a beer.
0: Right. And the other thing you can do in Astoria is you can visit a National Park Service site and that would be Lewis and Clark National and State Historical Park.
1: We have visited that. It is the home of Fort Clatsop which was the winter encampment for Lewis and Clark when they came and they spent from December 1805 to March 1806 there.
0: So they found this location and it offered a lot of game to hunt, a lot of elk are in that area, and it had close proximity to the ocean. So Clark sketched a preliminary site plan and they began construction in early December. So the fort was completed by January 1st. And it housed, I love it the National Park Service says it this way, it housed 32 men one woman, a baby, and a dog.
1: It's so very, <laughs> a very detailed census <laughs> well, there. Well,
0: it is. But what they don't tell you is who the woman was, the very, very, very famous woman.
1: Yeah. I know who, who that is because I've been there.
0: Yes. It's
1: Sacagawea, which is the wrong way to pronounce it. But that's, <laughs> hey, I went to... School in the 1960s and 70s. (laughs) And back then, they taught us it was Sacagawea.
0: Right. And now scholars believe that it's pronounced Sacagawea. And the baby was her son, Jean Baptiste Charbonneau. So um, the baby's father was Toussaint Charbonneau, a French Canadian fur trapper who joined the Lewis and Clark expedition as an interpreter. And Sacagawea was the explorer's interpreter among the Shoshone Indians. So a very famous resident there. Well, actually, lots of famous ones, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. Now, one thing to note, this is not the original fort. There was nothing left of the fort. So they rebuilt it based on drawings and um, and things that were written about it. But you can walk through. There are also a few hiking trails in that area.
1: Okay. But I I would like to know, who was the dog? The dog? Yeah. You said there was a woman and a baby and a dog.
0: What what kind
1: of dog was it? Oh,
0: the dog. What was the dog's name? I don't know. You know what? Hold on a second. Let me look it up right now.
1: Okay. Okay. Got it there?
0: I've got it. Okay. The dog, his name was Semen.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You're making this up.
0: No, not not <laughs> not that semen. C man. S e a m a n. Like a seaman, seaman. Yeah, that's C-man. what I se- That's what I thought. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a picture of him. Well, it's actually not a real picture. It's a drawing. It looks like he was he was a Newfoundland dog you know one of those big newfoundlands
1: this is a podcast they cannot see they cannot see (laughs) the drawing of
0: okay well i'm describing it he's a a big he was a big newfoundland dog um so it says here seaman helped hunt beavers he caught a goat in the water once and he assisted hunting parties in carrying back their catches Oh, listen to this. On more than one occasion, he saved his humans from charging bison, and he alerted the party to presence of bears along the Upper Missouri River.
1: So he's a working dog. He
0: was a working yeah, dog. Yeah, he was
1: earning his feed.
0: And I guess the, I'm just still scanning this. I guess the Shoshone Indians really liked the dog. In fact, one Indian offered to buy semen for three beaver skins. Okay. (laughs)
1: Let's just move on. Well, you asked about the dog.
0: Okay. So Sacagawea, her baby, and semen the dog. How's that?
1: (laughs) That's great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess during the busy season, which I believe would be summer, they do have rangers in costume, and there are ranger-led programs. There's also a visitor center with a museum, a bookstore, a couple of movies. And uh, yeah, Astoria is a great stop because breweries and and an NPS historical site. I don't know, Matt, what more could you want?
1: How about a pig and a pancake? Do they have one of those?
0: You know, Matt, actually, they do have a pig and a pancake restaurant in Astoria. We just, we haven't... uh stop there because we've been so preoccupied with the breweries. Why
1: have we not ever been to a pig and pancake? We're always on the outside looking in.
0: I know, we are. And so Mark, just note, in Cannon Beach, there is a pig and a pancake. You know, this is obviously by the name, um, a breakfast place. So definitely check that out and let us know how it is because Matt is only we're dreaming. we're going to go. Right, right.
1: There's another stop we didn't mention, and that's Cape Disappointment State Park. It's just across the river from Astoria. So it's on the Washington state side. So for Lewis and Clark history buffs, there's a Lewis and Clark interpretive center there, as well as a lighthouse, a really uh, well-restored lighthouse, the North Head Lighthouse. We must have been there like within weeks of when they finished that restoration because it was all sparkling and clean.
0: Yes, actually, a lot of great stops along there. And you know, we are planning to do sometime in the next several months, we're going to do an episode about the Oregon coast, from the northern tip to the southern tip and all of the really incredible things to do. So that's in the works.
1: Yeah. Okay, Mark, there you go. There's a few ideas for you. And don't forget to buy your day use reservation for Mount Rainier. All right, Karen, what is our next question?
0: All right, this one comes from Christy, and she wrote, My family was just talking about the Beehive Trail in Acadia and wondering if there are similar trails in other areas. It was super popular with my kids, ages 12 and 14. My youngest doesn't like hiking and didn't complain at all on the Beehive Trail. We are headed to the Mighty Five and Grand Canyon early this summer, and recommendations are welcome. So that's her question. I did email her back and ask specifically what they liked about the Beehive Trail. And I, I had a feeling I already knew, but she did confirm that they liked the climbing the ladders and scrambling on the rocks.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, who, who wouldn't? Young teenagers, <laughs> 12 and 14, right? they're like monkeys. They lo- they'll <laughs> love climbing over stuff. And Utah has Plenty of places that 12- and 14-year-olds can climb all over.
0: Actually, Utah might be the very best state for fun, scrambling hiking. Uh, So we'll just give you a couple of suggestions for Utah specifically. Um, In arches, definitely try to get permits for the fiery furnace. Now, you have to reserve those ahead of time on recreation.gov. At least two days ahead of your trip, they do go up for grabs seven days in advance.
1: So maximum. Maximum of, seven, of seven days. days. So if you're, you're trying to get them a month ahead, you're not going to find it available.
0: Right, right. And they go really fast. So this is one of those things you need to be on your computer, uh, you know, logged into recreation.gov the second they go up. Um, but we loved that particular trail.
1: I know we say this often about, you know, you got to be on your computer or on your phone, whatever, like the day of, the minute of these things go on, on sale or, or come up for grabs. You know, that's just the reality now of going to a lot of these public lands. And like, that's no joke that we spend a lot of time keeping track of deadlines and getting permits and things, like literally the minute they come up. So that's kind of one of the things you have to do these days if you want to go to these popular places.
0: Absolutely, because everyone wants to do these things. Now, the fiery furnace will probably take you about a half of a day um, assuming you don't get lost too many times. But this is fun for kids of all ages because there is scrambling and crawling and you're searching for these little tiny arrows to find your way out of these dead-end spots. And I think it would be perfect for your kids yeah, and you.
1: Yeah, and some of those dead ends are, are fun to explore, even though you know it's not the right direction. Right. right. You just uh, to scramble over. So so you got that fiery furnace in arches. Also in Zion National Park, you know, the Zion Narrows would be a great hike for kids, and in, in, in your case, uh, you know, young teens, just hiking up the Virgin River through a slot canyon.
0: Right, and you do not need to get a permit ahead of time for this, so you can just show up now. Our advice would be go early, early in the morning before it gets too crowded, but this is really fun because your kids can splash in the water. If they want to swim, they can. We loved the Zion Narrows hike.
1: Yeah, and there's a kind of a smaller version of this kind of a hike uh, in Canera, Utah, which is not far outside of Zion. It's Canera Falls. Uh, now that one also, it, you need to get a permit online to do that one.
0: Right now, it's not terribly difficult to get a permit as long as you're, you know, a few weeks out. It's not like a lottery or anything like some of the other permits. But that one is fun. It's a, it's less crowded than the Zion Narrows because they limit it. They limit the number of people per day. But again, you are hiking through a creek through a slot canyon, and then up this really tall ladder that's next to a waterfall.
1: Also, uh, not too far outside of Bryce Canyon National Park, in Escalante Grand Staircase National Monument is Willis Creek. It's a little slot canyon mm-hmm. uh, that you can hike into,
0: right? Also, you are walking through water in this one. This one is a little um, easier, a little more gentle. Again, you do not need a permit for this one. You know, pretty much any slot canyon is going to be great for for your kids because it just it's just such a fun experience.
1: Okay, kind of back towards the Moab area is Canyonlands National Park. Now, Canyonlands has. Um, several districts. And we're talking about the Island in the Sky District, which is the one closest to Moab. And there's a trail in that district called the Aztec Butte Trail. And that would be a fun scramble. There's a couple of scrambles because there's the Aztec Butte that you go up. Now, you got to be careful because it's, <laughs> it's a little steep in places. And you do that. But also then there's a little, this little spur trail off of that where you can go to the granaries. Those are both, they're not very long and those are kind of fun.
0: They are fun. And when you get, after you scramble up this rock face to the top of the Butte, then there's a trail that circles the perimeter of the Butte, gorgeous views. And every time we've done it, there has been no one up there but us, because it is a little bit tricky to get (laughs) up there. But if we can do it, your 12 and 14 year old will be able to do it for sure.
1: You're definitely going to want to have some good treads on the bottom of your shoes, All of you. So you have a grip on that slick rock.
0: And then just a few more in Capitol Reef. um, There is the Sulphur Creek hike that you can do from the visitor center. Again, you're hiking through a creek and that's always fun. There are also some slot canyons off of Nodham Bullfrog Road. We have talked about a couple that we've done. So um, you could check those out as well when you're in Capitol Reef.
1: And when you're driving between Capitol Reef and Arches, you'll pass a turnoff to Goblin Valley State Park. This is this is while you're on Highway 24. And when you're in Goblin Valley State Park, I mean, just, just hiking through the valley itself is fun for kids. But there's also a hike called Goblin's Lair, and it's about 2.3 miles round trip. We have not done this hike, but we've read a lot of reviews and reports from people who have taken... Kids on it, and they say kids love it.
0: And lastly, in that same area, just a few miles from Goblin Valley State Park is Little Wild Horse Canyon. That's a slot canyon. That's very fun. So, you know, Utah is just chock full of places like that where kids can, you know, they can be kids and they can climb and scramble and have such a wonderful time. So check out some of these places or Google slot canyons in the areas that you are. Make sure that they are non-technical slot canyons. That makes a big difference. And
1: be aware of the weather forecast. If there's storms in the area and downpours can create flash floods and these uh, slot canyons can be really dangerous um, when those flash floods happen. So just be aware of, of the forecast.
0: So, Christy, well, we hope these suggestions help. You know, it's wonderful that you are seeking out fun activities for your kids in these parks because they're going to remember these experiences fondly <laughs> as, you know, my my parents took me to the national parks and I had the the time of my life.
1: Yeah, it's great to have places where kids can scramble. Okay, Karen, what is our next question?
0: All right, this one comes from Erin in Lexington, Kentucky, and she wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, I can't believe that my dream has finally come true. I was awarded a camping permit for Havasu Falls in June. I'm so happy, but I'm also scared about the hike down into the canyon and back up. I know you've done this one before, as well as Bright Angel Trail from the South Rim down to Phantom Ranch. Are they similar in difficulty and how much do I need to train for this? I'm comfortable doing five to seven mile hikes.
1: Okay, great question. Um, And we do have some information to share on this Mm -hmm. one. But first of all, if people listening, they're not familiar with Havasu Falls, it's on land in Arizona belonging to the Havasu Indian tribe, the Havasupai people.
0: Right. So this is not public land. It's located in the Grand Canyon, but it's not part of Grand Canyon National Park. So Havasu Falls is famous for its turquoise waterfalls, and you need uh, to get a permit to go there. Now, these permits are either to camp in the campground or stay in their lodge. There is no day hiking allowed in this entire area.
1: And Erin, if you listen to our podcast episode about that adventure, episode number 28, You might remember that we did it with our friends John and Lolly, and the day before, something weird happened to John's foot. He thinks it might have been a spider bite. Who knows what it was? I don't think they ever figured it out, but his foot was really swollen. I mean, like, really swollen.
0: He could barely get his hiking boot on, and, you know, despite our um, continual suggestions that we cancel, John managed to limp his way down into the canyon. Yeah, I don't know
1: that it was our suggestion. I think that you and Lolly were wanted. You wanted to just drop him off at the hospital and go without him. Just park him at the hospital and go. You made the suggestion several times.
0: Well, okay, fair enough. We did, but going to Havasu Falls had been in my bucket for years. And you know, it was what a year or two before that we tried to go and we got turned back because there was a monsoon and they closed it. So I was feeling like this was my last chance to go and.
1: So let's just park him at the hospital. <laughs> if, if anyone shows sign of weakness, we, we set him on the side of the trail and they're on their own.
0: You know, he would have been fine in the hospital. They would have taken good care of him. They probably would have figured out what was wrong with his foot. <laughs>
1: Did you ever ask John what he wanted?
0: Oh, he wanted to go. And you know what? He was a trooper. But we do not recommend Aaron limping down into the canyon. You know, when we did this in in 2016, kind of what spurred us um, to do this that particular year was in the fall. In September, we were going to do our first dory boat trip on the Colorado River, and that had us ending at Phantom Ranch and hiking up out of the canyon. So we figured that this um, Havasu Falls hike would be kind of a training hike for that particular hike.
1: Yeah, and it was a good training hike. I I remember it being difficult, but not as difficult as I thought it would be.
0: Exactly. Uh, So we jotted down some numbers, some statistics, so you can kind of compare the two hikes. Now, Havasu... Falls hike that starts the elevation at the top is about fifty two hundred feet. That's where you're starting from, and hiking from the hilltop down to the campground is ten miles and twenty four hundred feet of elevation change.
1: Yeah, but half of that elevation change, like literally like twelve hundred feet of it, is in the first mile and a half. So you just well, if you're going down, you're you're going uh, steep pretty quick, and then the rest of it is fairly flat matter of fact even coming back i remember thinking that it it didn't feel like you were going uphill that last mile does feel like you're definitely going uphill when you're coming out
0: yeah there's eight and a half miles of the hike where you only have 1200 feet of elevation change so that seems fairly flat but boy that first mile and a half is really tough Anyway, after eight miles of hiking, you'll come to Supai Village. And if you want to, you can take a break. There's a little market there. You can get a cold drink. When we were there, they sold ice cream. So you could take a break in the village before going on to the campground, which is another two miles.
1: Right. When you get to the village, that is where you get to the visitor center where you have to show them your permit. You don't go all the way to the campground to show them your permit. You have to check in with the ranger. It's obvious where you do this. It's right as you enter the village.
0: And, you know, before you get to the campground, you do pass Havasu Falls on the way to the campground. So you'll get to see that, which is, of course, one of the reasons that you're going. Um, So to compare it to the Bright Angel Trail down to Phantom Ranch, that trail, you're starting at an elevation of 68, 60 feet. So what is that, Matt? About 1,400 feet higher in elevation. Now, it's similar mileage. It's also about 10 miles from the rim to Phantom Ranch.
1: Yeah, but it has about a forty five hundred foot elevation change, so that's like twice as steep.
0: Right, Bright Angel Trail is harder, but you know we would encourage you and and anyone who is attempting to hike down into Havasu Falls to train. You know, the more uh, the better shape you're in, the more comfortable you're going to be. And when you mentioned that you can hike five to seven miles, you know, we don't know like. Is that at uh, you know steep elevation changes, or is that you know walking around your neighborhood? So so you want to be comfortable with the uh, with the elevation. That's key.
1: Yeah, everyone's five to seven miles is different, but yeah, the going down to the village in the campground that's not the hard part. It's it's the coming out.
0: Definitely the coming out. And the other thing to note, too, there is no shade on this trail. And when you're coming out, of course, Aaron, you're going to ha- be carrying gear on your back. We didn't have that because we stayed at the lodge. So our packs were fairly light, and we were only going for one night. But as you're coming out, just remember, you're going to hit that hard spot, the end, that steep spot, you know, probably midday, even if you start out early. And so it's going to be full sun. It's going to be hot. You're going to be tired because you just hiked eight and a half miles before you get to the steep spot. So yeah, I mean, that's that will be probably your toughest part right there.
1: But we do have a hiking tip for you. This is a, <laughs> this is a tip that we use often. Uh, you know, that last mile and a half, like we said, it's it's really hard. It's steep and you you're going to be you probably going to be hot at that point so make sure you have enough water but also you could leave a cooler in your car with cold waters in there and then maybe some snacks
0: you'll find out when you get there but the parking lot the trailhead for havasu is in the middle of nowhere so you're once you get back to your car you're going to be driving for a while before you are able to find some place to stop for for drinks or snacks. So just make sure you have them in your car. And believe me, you will really appreciate it once you get up there. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we are on the mailing list now for the Havasu um, Falls for the tribe there. And they did send us the notice at the beginning of the year about reservations. But, Matt, I was surprised by how expensive it's gotten since we did it back in 2016.
1: Yeah, what, what does it cost?
0: Well, so they've changed it a little bit. In 2024, you have to book three nights. Whether you are camping or whether you're staying at the lodge, you you can't do less than three nights. So, the cost for camping for three nights is $455 per person. The lodge, the cost for three nights is 2000 277. What
1: for three nights? Yes, <laughs> really? No, know. Huh. I, know.
0: I, I don't remember what we paid, but I think it, we paid like it
1: wasn't that. I, I think it was like you.
0: 250 a night, which we thought was a lot back then. Mm-hmm. I yeah. know. Now, the only maybe saving grace about this lodge would be that they do allow you to sleep four people per room. There are two double beds in each room. So, if you went with another couple or if you went with three other people, whatever. You could split the cost with some other people, but it's a little room, and that's that would be a lot of togetherness.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a that's kind of expensive for like we didn't have hot water. No, so maybe that they have hot water now.
0: Maybe they have fixed it up.
1: Yeah, they could.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know.
1: We're not besmirching the lodge. It was a it was a fine place to stay. I mean, we couldn't get campground spots anyway so Mm it's the only place we had to stay
0: yeah we were grateful for a bed and we were grateful there was a window air conditioner and it was hot and we were really grateful for the air conditioning because i think we had hiked didn't our gps say it was 17 miles
1: john's uh the gps on his watch said 17 miles but I think he was also delirious from <laughs> dragging his foot around. I, might might have been ten miles. I don't know. Now, he, he he says it's seventeen miles.
0: Because one of the big attractions besides Havasu Falls is Mooney Falls. And Mooney Falls is another mile or so past the campground. So, you know, once we got to the village and we checked in, then we hiked to Havasu Falls. And then we hiked to the campground. And then we hiked to Mooney Falls. And then we had to turn around and hike back up to the lodge. So we did somewhere between, you know, I think 15 and 17 miles that day. And that was a lot for us
1: (laughs) yeah but it was it was a great day and um john was a trooper
0: oh my gosh it was amazing that he was able to do it so anyway that's kind of a long answer to your question aaron but yes we think you should absolutely train for this hike so you're comfortable there's no surprises you know you don't want to (laughs) suffer
1: that's right (laughs) We we know this,
0: <laughs> right? It's going to be a lot more fun if you don't suffer. So, I don't know what your options for training in Kentucky are in the winter, but you know, maybe you just want to join a gym for a couple of months and get on the treadmill and get on that stairmaster. Uh, that's what we have been doing lately this winter to try to try to stay in shape for summer hiking.
1: Try, yeah, trying to, yeah.
0: Trying. Okay,
1: thank you for your question, Aaron. Hope that helps, and you have an incredible time down there.
0: That's right. Let us know how it goes.
1: Okay, Karen, do we have any more questions?
0: We have one more question from Jeff in Omaha, Nebraska, and he wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, my wife and I will be visiting North Cascades National Park this summer, and we only have one full day in the park. We plan on hiking the Blue Lake and Maple Pass trails, and we'll stop at the Diablo Lake and Washington Pass overlooks but we know that none of these are actually within the boundaries of the national park. Do you know of any place where we could fairly quickly cross the border into the park so we can say that we actually stepped foot in it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. We had the same question years ago when we were going to all the parks, even though this, is, this park's probably the closest of the national parks to our house. Uh, it can be a little confusing. But before we get into that answer we need to explain something about this area in these these public lands the north cascades it's a complex of parks so you got the north cascades national park but also adjacent to it you have ross lake national recreation area and you have lake chelan national recreation area and if you look at a map they all look like one big green area and they're actually managed as a unit and so the Borders between these uh, different entities, there are three separate entities in in the National Park Service system, the managers of this area, they don't really, it's not so important where the border is. The whole thing feels and looks like a national park.
0: Right, but while it might not be important to the managers of the park, it is important to a lot of people. It was important to us that we actually step foot in the park. And here's the thing a lot of visitors don't know. When you drive along the North Cascades Highway, which is Highway 20, and this runs through the center of the park complex, You're not in the national park. And as Jeff mentioned, those highlights where he's planning to visit, where most people visit, none of those are actually in the park. So what to do if you are particular about stepping foot in the park? Of course, there are a lot of long hikes that will take you into the national park within the boundaries. But we have an actually really quick suggestion for you, Jeff, and for anybody else who's interested
1: so you can hike on the bridge creek trail and if you hike a mile or two on that trail you'll come to the park border and that's uh that's an easy trail to hike
0: and you know what this is something that most people don't know about and they drive right past we discovered this when we were doing a backpacking trip from uh, North Cascades Highway at Bridge Creek to Stahecan. And we took a couple of days, but we discovered that very quickly we crossed into the National Park boundary. So here's what you need to do, Jeff. On Highway 20 about mile marker 159. And this is just a little over one mile east of Rainy Pass. You're going to come to a parking lot on the north side of the highway. So park there. You're going to cross the street to the trailhead, which coincidentally is the Pacific Crest Trail. And there's a big sign there. We, we have a photo right. of us standing get in front you, of the sign. Get your
1: picture by the sign.
0: <laughs> right. And then you hike. I know it's more than a mile. I'm going to say it's just under two miles. And there are these very cool old wooden signs that are, you know, uh, nailed to trees that will kind of guide you because there are some different forks on this trail. But anyway, you will come to a marker that says North Cascades National Park. And this is a really pretty trail through the woods. And as Matt said earlier, it's very easy.
1: Right. So you can uh, do that and then definitely cross the border into the park. Say you were there. Right. Um, when you get to this area, it'll become more clear that the entire complex has the look and feel of a national park
0: oh my gosh yes and all of these spots whether you're in Ross Lake National Recreation Area or even the National Forest which is where where the Maple Pass um, hike is and Blue Lake no matter where you are in this complex it's gorgeous and it will absolutely be worth um, worth the trip out there
1: Okay, so Jeff, those are some suggestions.
0: Yes, thank you so much for your question. And that's going to wrap it up for Mailbag today. If you have a Mailbag question that you would like us to include in our next Mailbag, please email it to us at Smith at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for joining us today and a special shout out to our listeners in Finland <laughs> we appreciate you tuning in.
0: We do. I would love to go to Finland. Isn't uh, isn't that supposed to be the happiest country in the world?
1: I don't know. May- maybe it is. It's probably because they listen to our podcast, <laughs> <Cara>. <laughs> and, and it brings them so much uh, happiness.
0: Wow, way to work that in, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well. Well. Maybe we'll go and we'll find out.
0: Yes, we should go and see firsthand. All right. And for all of you new listeners out there, please follow us on Instagram at Matt and Karen Smith, because we post a lot of photos and videos of the places that we talk about in these episodes.
1: And if you'd like to receive some bonus content from us, please consider joining our Patreon account. It's $5 a month, less than a price of a beer in a brewery, Karen.
0: I like how you made that analogy.
1: So I'm not sure now people are going to think beer or Patreon. I think we might actually lose some Patreon followers. Okay, forget that. It's five bucks a month. Thank you for your support.
0: Thank you. We appreciate it so much. We'll see you all next week.